Radio Mano Papachango. to another edition of uh, Tangentially Speaking. It's uh, Independence Day. Yippee-io. America. As the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw put it, patriotism is your conviction that your country is superior to all others because you were born in it. Give that some thought. Everybody's fucking patriotic. Everybody thinks their country's the best. Native people, who I often lionize on this podcast and elsewhere, uh, are just as susceptible to that as everyone else. If you look at uh, terms like Navajo, Apache, Lakota, whatever, most of those terms that people use for their own community uh, translate as the people, right? Everyone thinks they're the chosen one. Everyone thinks they're God's children. Even people who have this Old Testament God that apparently hates everybody and fucks everybody up, they think also that they're chosen by an abusive, horrible daddy God, um, but, you know, he still loves us the most, even though he treats us like shit. I don't know. Have you ever read the book of Job? If you haven't read the book of Job and you're a little um, torn about the Bible and the Old Testament God, that's a good place to start. It's pretty amazing. This guy, Job, believes uh, he's a true believer, and God and uh, the devil are sitting up there wherever God and the devil were hanging out, and um, the devil's sort of giving God some shit, like, oh, yeah, you think you're so great, And, and God's like, hey, look, you know, people believe in me, right? People are really um, convinced that I am amazing. And like, look at this guy, Job, you know, he's, he really believes in me. He's so, so, um, into me. And the devil says, yeah, but if, you know, if you fucked him up a little bit, you, you, he'd change his mind. Right. So the devil goes, I mean, God goes down and, um, he, uh, fucks Job up a little bit. I don't know. He takes his, you know, he kills his animals or something. And Job's like, um, all right, well, you know, I've had some bad luck, but God is great. I love God. And God says to the devil, see that? Job still believes. I took, I killed all his goats. Still believes. The devil's like, yeah, but, you know, you hardly singed him. You got to really, you know, take his shit, and then you'll see how much he loves you and believes in you. And so God goes down and um, kills the rest of his animals and, um, you know, sends a plague of locusts in to kill all it, to wipe out his crops as well. So now Job and his family are starving and uh, some neighbor comes over. This is all very loose memory of the book of Job, by the way. Any biblical scholars out there cut me, cut me some slack, uh, but I'm getting the spirit of the book, uh, I'm pretty sure. So a neighbor comes over and is like, geez, man, you've had some bad luck, man. I don't know why those locusts just hit your crops. And all your animals died. Everybody else is doing fine. And, you know, you should renounce God. And uh, Job says, hell no, I'm not renouncing God. I love God. God loves me. God and I are tight. And God says to the devil, see that? Job still won't renounce me. And the devil's like, yeah, but, you know, test him a little more. You'll see. So God goes down and kills Job's family. 
kills his wife, kids, kills them all, just to see what Job will do. But Job won't give up. Job still loves God. And so then the devil says, well, okay, but that's all exterior stuff. You know, anyone can give up their exterior stuff. So God goes down and covers Job in pestilent boils and burns all his property. So Job, by the end, is sitting there on an ash heap covered in boils and refuses to renounce God, even with all those tests, even after having lost everything. Now, this story is told in churches throughout the land as some sort of bizarre inspirational tale, I suppose. To me, that's a story of how twisted and fucked up that God is. I mean, oh, by the way, the end, the happy ending is even more twisted and fucked up. Okay, because after all that, the devil finally admits like, ah, you're right. Okay, Job, Job's a true believer. You're right. Okay, I lost the bet. Right. So what's God do? He goes down and he gives Job twice as much land as he had before, twice as many animals, twice as many children and wives. So what is this? So God is like, it's all about quantity, right? Like, oh, sorry, killed your wife and kids. But hey, don't worry. Now you get twice as many. Wow, lucky you. I don't know. That's some pathological shit right there. I don't know how I got into that. Oh, God, patriotism. Right. Everyone thinks they're the chosen ones. So when you're out there watching the fireworks this weekend, or if you just watch them, I guess you just watch them because this won't go up till Monday. Um, Hey, how about those fireworks? That was pretty amazing, huh? Anyway, that's what I have to say about patriotism. This is the first episode with the vets. I thought that uh, Independence Day weekend was uh, a good time to put one of these together. I've got three of them in the can. They're all fantastic. I'll probably do another couple, two, three. Um, and, uh, you know, talking to these people who are in the military, it's it's very interesting you know, it's a self-selected group because they're people who listen to this podcast. So, you know, I'm not getting, um, you know, American sniper. Although this guy, uh, Jared, is a, was a sniper, a pig, as he calls himself, which I guess is a sniper without some of the official training. Anyway, before I say anything else about this, I want to play a song that Jared asked me to play. And uh, it's a good song. It's by the novelist. Uh, apparently, uh, I guess the lead singer in the band is a friend of Jared's and he recommended the tune. And, uh, so here it is. It's called, I don't want to be like you. I went to your college. I earned your degree. I paid for the ride to be told. Who it is that you thought I should be I was tempted in taking your lead But the beggars, they're making me bleed I don't want to be like you I worked in your office I sold you my time So you asked me to 
tune huh really good tune i paid for the right to be told who it is you thought i should be that's how they sum up college (laughs) yeah i guess so in the continuing series of uh, updating you on this book i'm writing uh, i thought i'd talk to you a little bit this week very quickly about the chapter i'm working on right now which is um introducing i'm trying to introduce a new concept to American psychiatric and psychological uh, diagnosis, which is RAS, rich asshole syndrome. And my argument is that, you know, we generally think that assholes are born. I think assholes are made, rich assholes anyway. Um, And what I'm arguing is going to strike some people as really strange, I think, and probably piss off some reviewers, because I'm sort of defending rich assholes by saying, in a way, it's not really their fault. And I'm, I'm reviewing um, evidence that people become dicks when they're rich because they sort of have to in order to function. And I talk about being in India myself years ago and for the first time in my life feeling like I was insanely wealthy because the amount of money that I was spending, um, you know, to travel for a year could have probably pulled 15 or 20 or maybe more families out of debt that would, you know, ruin their entire lives, you know? I mean, what I spent on my ticket to get to India, I could have put a kid through school. I, I mean, it just when you get into these bizarre sorts of um, 
scales, uh, it's very difficult to wrap your head around it. And you're sitting there eating a curry that costs $2, and there are 15 or 20 kids standing there staring at you like starving puppies, and you sort of become inured to it. And it's not that you want to, it's that you have to. Or I, I remember meeting this guy in India and this is in the late 80s, okay, before email, before internet. So when you went someplace, you were there, okay? It took months for letters to go back and forth. It wasn't like today where, you know, you can text your mom in 10 seconds from any place on the fucking globe. Um, and I met these this guy, this British guy, and uh, he'd been traveling around for four or five months, and we were talking about it and the, the sort of shockingness of it. And his story was that he and his buddy, um, when they decided when they got out of high school, they were going to go to India together. They'd always wanted to travel together, and it was this lifelong dream. So they finished high school, they saved up some money, and they flew to India. And the cheapest ticket from London was to Calcutta. So they flew into Calcutta, and... They um, got a taxi. They they booked a room in a hotel um, from England, and they got in the taxi and went from the airport to the hotel. And um, you first time you arrive in India, it blows your fucking mind. It is like another world, and you see things that you can't believe you're seeing, um, uh, particularly in terms of poverty and. Um, it's pretty shocking. So anyway, these guys, they get to the hotel and they go in and um, the guy I'm talking to takes a shower. The other guy lies down and he's resting and the other guy gets out of the shower. He's like, hey, let's take a shower or whatever. Let's go get some food. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm just going to hang here. You go ahead. So goes out, walks around a little bit, finds some food, goes back to the room. His buddy's asleep. Get up the next morning. His buddy says... I'm leaving. I'm sorry. I can't do this. Gets a taxi, goes back to the airport, flies back to England. He's done. So I meet the survivor, the one who stayed four or five months later. And that was his experience. Came with his buddy. His buddy lasted not even 24 hours. The The taxi ride from the airport blew his mind. Anyway, my point is he wasn't willing or able to develop the psychological scar tissue that allows you to move through that world. And I think that that is what we're talking about, whether it's, you know, a rich guy like me or you or anyone else who can afford to fly to India and spend a year backpacking around is comparatively very wealthy um, compared to a lot of the people that you see there or Africa or there are lots of other places in the world, right? Uh, where those disparities are so extreme. But then you get, you know, somebody's got a, a million bucks in the bank and he lives in San Francisco or he's got five or six million bucks in the bank and you're passing by homeless people every day, um, especially until very recently with Obamacare, people who couldn't afford to go to the hospital, right? Who couldn't afford to go to a doctor, couldn't afford to go to a dentist. Um, do you help them? Can you help them? What happens if you help them? How many can you help? You confront questions that sort of force you to become a dick in a way because it forces you to build up this emotional scar tissue. 
Anyway, I talk about in the in the book here. I'll read a couple paragraphs. These researchers, um, Keltner and Piff, who were at uh, Berkeley, decided to tweak a game of Monopoly so that one player had huge advantages over the other. They brought in over a hundred pairs of subjects into their lab and flipped a coin to determine who'd be rich and who'd be poor in the game. The randomly chosen rich player started out with twice as much money, collected twice as much every time he or she passed go, and got to roll two dice instead of one. So they moved around the board twice as fast, right? None of these advantages were secret. All players knew you know, what was going on. Um, but still, the winning, quote, winning players quickly showed the telltale signs of rich asshole syndrome. They were far more likely, for example, to display dominant behaviors like smacking the board with their piece, celebrating their skill. They even ate more pretzels from a bowl that was nearby. In Piff's words, quote, the rich players actually started to become ruder toward the other person, less and less sensitive to the plight of those poor players, and more and more demonstrative of their material success, more likely to showcase how well they were doing. Maybe I should call this Trump Trumpitis or something. After 15 minutes, the experimenters asked the subjects to discuss their experience of playing the game. Amazingly, when the rich players talked about why they'd won... They didn't focus on the fact that they started out with twice as much money, had double the dice and went around the board and collected twice as much every time they passed go. Instead, they focused on the strategies that they'd employed. (laughs) How clever they were, right? They talked, quoting Piff, they talked about what they'd done to buy those different properties and earn their success in the game. He said, what my colleagues and I for the last seven years have been doing is studying the effects of these kinds of hierarchies. What we've been finding across dozens of studies and thousands of participants across this country is that as a person's levels of wealth increase, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down and their feelings of entitlement, deservingness and their ideology of self-interest increases. In surveys, we found that it's actually wealthier individuals who are more likely to moralize greed being good and that the pursuit of self-interest is favorable and moral. Money is toxic. Just like, name anything, water, sex, um, food, alcohol, enough is great, but more than enough immediately becomes toxic. Money is subject to the same universal law. So I am making progress on the book. And toward that end, I'm not going to rant anymore. I'm going to wrap this up and get back to writing. Thank you to everyone who is uh, supporting the podcast through Fund What You Love. Thank you to those of you who have made one-time donations through my website, chrisryanphd.com, through that donate PayPal donate button there. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's using the Amazon affiliate link on my site to buy their stuff at Amazon. I really appreciate all the support. And, you know, those of you who don't have the cash to help out right now, don't worry about it. Happy to have you along. Uh, it's a, it's a pay what you can kind of situation here, but I do appreciate those of you who are helping to keep the podcast bullshit free, or at least advertising bullshit free. Um, and what else can I say? Oh, as always, sure design t-shirts, the one exception, they never ask me for anything, which makes me want to give them 
everything I have. Sure Design T-shirts. They're wonderful. Uh, they're the guys who make all the shirts that my mom sends out from California. We're running low on the Civilized to Death shirts, so if you find uh, the out of stock in what you, uh, the size you want, hold on. I've already placed a reorder. We'll be getting some of those in soon. And we're also going to have a new line of Talking Out My Ass shirts which uh, I hope you like as much as the Civilized to Death one. So we'll have some of those coming in soon as well. Shore Design t-shirts, check them out. They've got all sorts of cool stuff. They'll send it to you straight from Thailand. Also, congratulations to Oregon. This week, uh, weed became legal here. Smoke weed every day. Okay, I'm going to play you out with a really beautiful song by another podcast listener. Um, by the name of uh, Ed Dupas, D-U-P-A-S. The album is called A Good American Life. This is the title track from the album. Uh, He sent me a link to some of his music a while ago, and I heard this song, and it blew my fucking mind. I I think this guy, is this song in particular, but the whole record's great. I I highly recommend it. It's available on iTunes, and uh, you can find them on SoundCloud and elsewhere. I'll just Google Ed Dupas, D-U-P-A-S. Anyway, be sure to listen to the lyrics to this song. Uh, maybe listen to it two or three times, uh, along with the earlier one. I think both these songs are great. Um, but this song really breaks my heart. Um, it's beautiful. It's smart. It's touching. And it's a little bit country. Wake up in the morning The alarm clock tells me when Pour a cup of coffee And hit the road again Find the nearest freeway Yeah, I got places to be That sounds like a good American Head to the office or the job side over the mill. Time to make some money, yeah, time to pay some bills. Cause they're charging me for things that I used to get for free. That sounds like a good American life to me. Catch my breath so I can tell myself I'm free. Feels like I'm running in circles. Guess I'll wait and see. That sounds like a good American life to me. Now we got ships in the go. Yeah, we got them in Japan. Got boots on the ground in Germany and Afghanistan And they got families and loved ones And kids they ain't never seen That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good American life to me 
catch my breath So I can tell myself I'm free Feels like I'm running in circles Guess I'll wait and see That sounds like a good Waiting on a whistle When everyone will stop But they keep right on Telling us this room Up at the top So I'm getting up tomorrow Guess that's how it's gonna be That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good Sounds like a good American life to me. Sounds like a good American life to me. All right, I am here with uh, the first in what will probably be a, a continuing series of interviews with uh, people who have served in the U.S. military. I'm here with Jared. Uh, welcome, Jared. Hi, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Um, you sent me an email uh, outlining a little bit about what you, uh, you know, your, the basic parameters of what you did in the military. You were in the Marines, is that right? Yes. And uh, two stints? Um, uh, one f- combat stint. The first time, it was a deployment to Okinawa uh, for training. And then we got attached to Security Forces Bahrain and we were out doing Persian Gulf, um, Gulf of Oman kind of patrols on merchant marine vessels. And this was, uh, you first uh, got into this in 2000? Yeah, I, I joined in 2000 right after i graduated high school and um yeah, that was july graduate boot camp around october and then come that february we were doing i was in my unit doing full-time training um got deployed the following february um right after the whole september 11th thing um but that was like i said to okinawa as, as a regular deployment and then attached security forces and then later in 2003, went over to Kuwait and then was there for the invasion of Iraq. So what, what led you to get involved in the military in the first place? You said you, you entered right out of high school. Yeah, probably a whole lot of reasons. Um, get out of the house, get away. Um, my older brother joined the Air Force, and uh, you know, I was looking to be competitive. And, uh, of course, the Marines is harder than the Air Force, so... You know, why not go full bore? <laughs> so, uh, just decided that was the way I wanted to go. You know, it was all moto and felt like, you know, service was a good thing. That's how I was kind of brought up. So decided to go for it. Right. And, so and, uh, you, your father was in the military? No, my grandfather was. Um, my uncles were. So it was kind of a 
a lot of family had been. My dad's an engineer, so totally different mindset. And did you get, uh, what kind of uh, feeling did you get from, from your, your uncles and, uh, and your, your father and other people in the family? Were they encouraging you to get into this? Um, yeah, I mean, even my dad was, was kind of encouraging. He, he thought it'd probably be good for me to get some structure and some training. And that was before, like I said, before September 11th. So it didn't seem as dangerous when I joined as it did later. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a feeling of, you know, it's a good way to go. It's a good way to get some college money, um, you know, get some structure, some discipline, get out of the house, kind of grow up a little. So yeah, I mean, most of my family was encouraging. Yeah, yeah. And, and your uncles were they deployed to to Vietnam or where were they? Yeah, one of them was. Um, my grandfather served at the tail end of Korea, um, and then um, my one of my uncles was a Green Beret in Vietnam. So that that was those are the ones that were deployed, and I mean they're they weren't pushing it, but you know they were just supportive. They're like, yeah, that's a good way to go. Hmm. That's interesting. My, I have an uncle who was in Vietnam as well. Uh, well, actually, two uncles, three, three uncles. But I'm thinking of one in particular who was a Marine, and uh, he had a horrible time. I mean, he was a, I think he was a tunnel rat. You, you know about that? Yeah. Yeah, he was, um, you know, it's kind of similar to what you're describing. There was a lot of competitiveness. He had a, an older brother who... Um, sort of, you know, I, th- I think there was a lot of sibling rivalry, at least from the younger brother's perspective. Yeah. And uh, joining the Marines was a way to prove something to his brother. But it was 1968, I think, uh, the first time he tried to enlist. And he was too small. Right. And uh, so, you know, he didn't make it through the initial screening. But then I guess the Marines changed their... Um, their uh, requirements, um, you know, because they needed more more guys, and so they lowered the requirements. And he went to boot camp. I think he he like got bounced out of boot camp, and then went back to, like again, and and finally made it through. And then after all that struggle to get in, he ended up as a tunnel rat. My God, yeah, the small guys. A lot of the small guys did. That was a horrible job. Yeah, I, about as bad as it gets, I think. I can't imagine anything worse than that. And for people who don't know, the tunnel rat, there are a lot of tunnels in Vietnam, and because Vietnamese are quite a bit smaller than Americans generally, the tunnels could be very small. And uh, so when they discovered the tunnels, they'd throw grenades down into the tunnels, and then somebody had to go down in there and, you know, explore it and make sure everybody was dead. And uh, so you're just crawling through. <laughs> body parts and stuff it must have just been yeah, unbelievable with just a pistol <laughs> and it's usually a one-way tunnel you can't really turn around oh man so you crawl forward and backward <sighs> can you imagine that holy oh, cow that's bad hopefully not claustrophobic yeah <laughs> well and and i mean even if it weren't full of body parts and like you know screaming maimed people i mean like you know uh, anyway so yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of when you're talking about your uncles, uh, especially the Green Beret, I was sort of surprised that they were supportive because you'd think they'd seen some things and they'd, they'd not want you to get into it. But I guess it depends on on what they actually went through, right? 
Yeah, and I think because there hadn't been anything real big going on for a while, I think the assumption was that it was it was safe and it was, you know, you could do your four and then, mm-hmm. you know, get out or you can move up so you never would really have to be exposed to that. And then everybody started worry after, you know, 2001. Everybody's like, oh, my God, what's going on? So yeah. that's when people started getting worried. So did you say, were you in boot camp when 9-11 happened or were you already no. in Okinawa? No, I was actually um, in 29 Palms. We were uh, we were getting up that morning, getting ready for the uh, Marine Corps Martial Arts Program. We were going to do some training that morning, and everything had ground to a halt, but nobody knew why. And then, you know, word spread through the barracks to, to turn the news on, and that was right after right after the first plane had hit. It finally filtered through, and I turned it on just in time to see the second plane hit. Um, so, needless to say, the training was off for the morning. And what was what was that like? What, what was the vibe in the room? Um, it's in hindsight, it's kind of silly, but it, the, the feeling at the time is like, oh, it's on, we're going, we're going like now we better get ready. And, and realistically, that's not the way it is. I mean, it takes a long time to get that stuff together, get people moving, you know, to get whole units deployed. It, it takes a lot of time, but we were, we were all in the feeling that we were going to go like right away. So, I mean, it was, it was kind of freaky, but at the same time, you know, you're, you're surrounded by all the guys and that's, that's what you're there for. So you get kind of this adrenaline rush of, oh, we're going, it's on now. But did you know where you'd be going? Oh, no idea. That was just assumption. That was the feeling at the time, yeah. And not until later, much later. Um, like I said, I didn't, I didn't go to Kuwait until 2003. Um, so, so the actuality didn't really meet the feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine you just you see something like that, especially in that kind of high testosterone environment, and you're like, let's go. Yeah, let's go do something right now. Yeah, but of course, figuring out what to do and who to do it to is a whole other issue. Yeah, that it took a while for that to sort out. But I mean, just the feeling at the time, though, because you're sitting around watching this with all the guys, and you're like, "Oh, dude, we're gonna go. They're gonna send us. Yeah, we're going." Because we were on workup for deployment anyway, so you know, we figured that that was gonna be the deployment. Yeah. So, so what what was uh, what was boot camp like? How how do you look back on that? Um. It's it's interesting. Um, I don't think it's as hard as as people try and make it out to be, but it's it's an interesting experience. Um, they they just try and basically isolate you from everything that you know and are comfortable with in order to, you know, do their brainwashing magic, um, and uh, kind of just turn you into a part of the machine. Um, so it's in, it's interesting you describe it that way. Were you thinking of it? In those terms at the time, were you like, oh, these guys are brainwashing me? No. I mean, to an extent, you know that the training is there to change the way you behave and think. And and you're okay with that. I mean, you joined for that. At least I I didn't have any delusions about the fact that I was going to change. Um, But I don't don't think I thought of it as much as kind of really intense brainwashing um, the way that I look back at it now. You know, with a little more education, a little more, you know, experience and and knowledge. Yeah. Because um, the way they teach, I mean, they go through a lot of the Marine Corps history and all the battles and all the valor and all the best people, but they leave out anything that is negative. And so you only get this really one-sided, just myopic view of this is awesome and you are part of awesomeness now, so you better be awesome yourself. Um, they don't bother to tell you anything bad. 
Yeah. Did you have anyone like in the early days when, you know, after you'd enlisted or maybe when you were at boot camp, did, did you have anyone who said, Hey dude, you know, this is what it's really like, you know, any, anybody who was hurt or, you know, who had a negative perspective on it? Um, not a lot of people were really negative about it. I had this one guy, um, because I was taking martial arts on my own, and there was this guy at the at the studio I went to, and he was an old Air Force guy, and he's like, "Well, you better enjoy boot camp because after that, it's like a nine to five. And I kind of laughed it off because his job in the Air Force was an elephant handler for like parades and stuff. So I'm like, "Well, your job would have been a nine to five. I'm joining the infantry, dude. Like, <laughs> it's not like that." So I, I kind of I kind of blew him off, um, and he's part right and part wrong. I mean, there's a lot of days where. You know, you're in the barracks and you're doing, you know, bullshit training and bullshit paperwork and sitting around. And and so, I mean, there is there's a lot of monotony and boredom to it. But then, you know, you go out to the range and you do some training and, and it's fun, exciting and fast paced. So it's kind of an on or off switch. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I, I had no idea there were elephant handlers in the air force that- i did i didn't know either until i talked to him i'm like well what did you do he's like he's like i handle elephants i'm like what kind of job is that i don't know if they still have it like this was a while ago so i mean i mean he he had been in a long time before i went so they, they probably don't have that anymore they contracted it out to some civilian somewhere yeah yeah definitely um so uh, okay so we're we're at boot camp and you're you're uh physically you didn't find it as challenging as you were expecting it's hard. I mean, and I was I was a tall, skinny guy, um, so I got you know a long reach. So pull ups are always a hard time for the, the tall guys because you got further to go to the bar and then more body weight compared to the length of your arm. So it's it's ridiculous. So you always get lower scores unless you really work on it. So it took me a little while to get that up. Um, and you know, I was I thought I was more prepared than I was physically when I went because you know I'm 18. I'm like, oh, I'm awesome, dude. I'm I'm I'll be great. And it's like, no. <laughs> No, you you weren't quite ready, but nice try. Yeah. So, but no, I I turned it around. But so there, there's those difficulties for the tall guys. You know, the short guys have a hard t- harder time humping and running a little bit. But some of them are good at that too. So it's not a blanket thing. Yeah. And did you meet people in boot camp that you'd never met before? Like, because uh, I, I imagine it is like a real mixing pot, right? People from different races and and parts of cities you might not have gone to. Um. Yeah. There's at least uh, when I went, there was a lot of Hispanics joining, a lot of people from Texas, as always. Mm. I swear, like, a third of Texas is in the military at any given time. It's ridiculous. Um, and then there were some people of some, some different backgrounds. Um, I think that was the first time I actually met somebody who was, who was open about being a Wiccan. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So I was like, wow. Because I was, I was born and raised, you know. So. Yeah, I. So, something just happened with your input. Did your uh, mic go off or something? Uh, Pull out because it sounds like I'm picking you up through your built-in mic or something now. Is it back? Yeah, now it's back. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, I think the controller turned off. It was stagnant too long. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so you tell me about this Wiccan. You meet a Wiccan in Marine boot camp. That's there's something bizarre in that. Yeah. So, like every Sunday morning, like that's your only real time where the drill instructors are not on top of you. You know, just for whatever crazy they can think of. And so you try and get away, and you go to a church service, even if you're not religious. I mean, because there's people that are not religious, and they but they just go somewhere just to get away. Because if you stay in the squad bay, you know, during that time. 
you're going to be put to work doing something stupid and the drill instructors are there. So you're not going to be doing a lot of push-ups and, you know, monkey fuckers and all that shit. So what, like, what are monkey fuckers? <laughs> um, it's, it's a ridiculous calisthenic exercise where you, get, you grab your ankles from behind. So you kind of have to squat down a little and grab your ankles from behind while, while sort of standing. And then you just do squats like that. And so it looks like you're fucking monkey because you're down low to the ground and it just it looks ridiculous <laughs> but it, it, it burns your thighs out real bad so it's it's just it's a horrific just ridiculous humiliating tiring <laughs> exercise imagine how so, the monkeys feel come on oh i know right so so yeah so anyway you go and you you go off to you know whatever religious service you go to and you kind of just hide out there and, and they didn't really have a religious service for the Wiccan. So he'd just go wherever, like he'd go with the Buddhist one week and he'd go with the Christians another week and just, just to get away. But no, it was, it was interesting to run somebody and, and, you know, I'm 18, you know, I'm raised way too conservative and, uh, you know, so I have no understanding what this is. And so I start talking to him and, and, you know, all the old stereotypes, you know, come to mind you know, when he says Wiccan, but then, you know, you talk to him and it's like, oh, it's, it's nothing at all what I was told Wiccan was. And so I actually got along with him, him pretty good as far as boot camp goes. So why, okay, so you're, you're from, uh, I don't know how much you want to identify yourself. That's why I'm not asking specific questions where you're from and all that, but um, you're from a, a small town, big city, what part of the country more or less? Um, born in Arizona and then moved up to Nevada, northern Nevada. Oh, okay. Um, so not, not a large city, but, you know, not Vegas. Right. Um, okay. But, yeah, I went, so I went to MCR, MCRD San Diego. Um, basically, the rule is anybody on this side of the Mississippi goes to San Diego for boot camp, and anybody on the other side goes to Paris Island. And then if you're female, you go to Paris Island no matter what. Hmm. Um, and that's the way it was when I was there. I don't know. I, I heard they were going to integrate San Diego, but I'm not sure if they have. Cause, so like I said, that was 15 years ago. So why the hell did a Wiccan join the Marines? Um, I don't know. There's there's something about Marines. They're crazy. Um, <laughs> Do you think are, are the Marines like the most eccentric branch of the military? You think? Um, you know, it's it's weird. Like you look at the commercials for the different branches. Um, you know, you see them on TV and stuff and, you know, they, they got the army commercials and, you know, they show you the action and they show you all the cool stuff and the high tech gadgets. And then they promise you school money and they're like, yeah, you'll get training and you'll get, you know, expertise and you'll get money for school. And they, you know, they sell you something. They're, they're being salesmen and the, and the, you know, the Navy does the same thing. The Air Force, you know, aim high Air Force, you know, into the blue kind of crazy stuff. But the Marines, then they just show you some crazy commercial like the ones I remember were like this guy fighting the dragon and then he like he beats the dragon and then like the lava pours down. He's also he's in the dress blue uniform. And he's like got the sword. And it's like but they're not telling you anything, they're not promising you anything. All they're showing is like you fight something and then you're different and it's cool. And so like I think it has a certain kind of draw, like that mm. a certain person identifies with and goes, Yeah, I'm gonna do that. And I think they're all a bit nuts. Right. So. Yeah, that, I, I agree with you. That, that makes sense. It's appealing to a personality type as opposed to a rational decision. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So, so what was your personality type? I mean, because you, you sound like a pretty rational, uh, you know, level-headed guy. What, what was it about the Marines that, how come you didn't, you know, become an elephant handler in the Air Force? <laughs> 
Well, like I said, my older brother joined the Air Force, and he was a. Uh, he's still in the Air Force, actually. He's he's coming up on his twenty now. Wow. Um, but he works on aircraft, and uh, he he had a pretty good run of it. Um, and you know, when he came home from talking to recruiters and stuff, and he was telling me how much money he would get for school if he wanted to do the GI Bill, and you know, the training and all this other stuff, and. I mean, honestly, I, I wanted to get out of the house. You know, I have three brothers, so I have two younger and one older. So I wanted to get out of the house. I wanted to get away. So it's like an instant exit. You know, you don't have to try and get a job mm. and save up for down on an apartment and move out. But you're still only like six blocks away from home. And so like it was it was just a way to get out. You know? right. So I was just I was gone. I was done with school. hated high school. So I'm like, you know, as soon as I'm done, I'm going. And uh so there was that aspect to it. There was the kind of upbringing of, you know, service to your country and you need to, you know, give back and all this other stuff. So there was that. Um, and so there, I think there was a, a multitude of factors of, of why I joined. Um, yeah. Factors that probably don't apply now, but I'm not sure if I'd do it any different now. Well, I mean, they might not apply to you, but I'll bet they apply to a lot of 18, 19 year old guys. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, that's what I mean, though. They don't really apply to me because I, I've changed so much. But part of the reason I have changed is because I had those experiences. So, like, yeah. even if I could do it over again, I probably would just because otherwise I wouldn't be me, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's some circular thinking that can get you in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I actually made fun of that in this book I'm writing. I, I, there's a line where I make fun of that way of thinking and I, I apply it to Charles Manson, you know. Like Charles Manson is saying, hey, I, I have no regrets, you know, because everything I did led me to be who I am today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but if, who you are today is horrible. Right? But, I mean, I guess he probably wouldn't think he's horrible, right? In no, head, he, nobody does. Head, he thinks he's awesome. He's yeah. like, yeah, I'm cool. I was I was good. Like, no, no, dude, you're a whack job. <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So, I, I mean, obviously, we we could talk about boot camp for an hour and a half, but I want to I want to move into your your military career here. So, you go to Okinawa. That's your first overseas posting after boot camp. So, okay. So, you finish boot camp. You go to your A school, basically. And for for me, since I was infantry, it was a school of infantry that lasts another um, couple of months, depending on if you're regular infantry, you an O three eleven, and then you're you just do the rifleman package. If your weapons infantry, you get a little bit long. It's like, I think it's an extra week or two of training, if I remember correctly. Um, and you do, so you do the basic 0311 training and then you do specialized weapons. So I was an anti-tank assault man. So we had to learn the Dragon anti-tank missile, the, um, the small rocket launcher, and um, demolitions. So things like Bangalore torpedoes, C4, TNT, and you know various applications of making tank traps and felled trees and all sorts of stuff. Right. Wow. And uh, I mean, the people that uh, were fighting these days don't really have tanks, do they? I mean, they're no, not, you no. Know. Like we. Well, the thing is, is like when that was developed, you know, great, awesome for you, like it works, but. Now it's like our air superiority is so much higher than anybody we have fought that, you know, helicopters take out tanks way faster than infantry can. So it's almost, it's almost used. But the thing is, is with multi-application of some of these weapons, like, like the SMA, it's, it's a rocket launcher and it has several different rockets. So you, you carry the launcher and then you have a variety of rockets depending on whatever you're issued for whatever mission. And you can breach walls of, you know, hardened concrete buildings. You can... You know, you can 
blow up smaller vehicles, you know, whatever it is you're you're trying to to do, you can you can use it. So it's it's kind of versatile. As far as the the dragon's old now, like they don't even learn the dragon anymore. That was that was an old piece of garbage. You you're gonna die if you use that. But now they have a javelin, um, which is a fire and forget missile, and way easier. You can blast a tank and run off before it even knows it's coming. What's that mean, fire and forget? That it's heat seeking or something? <laughs> okay, so the dragon um, was a wire guided missile and it had all these little rockets around the side like rocket burner things off the side that were basically just individual charged engines so just blast once and and correct itself as it flew through the air but you had to hold the guidance computer on target the entire flight of the missile because it was connected via a wire back to you and so the dragon would only go out to about 1100 meters um and it would take 11 seconds to get there. Well, tanks can shoot up to 1,800 meters, and it takes them about seven seconds to lock onto a heat suit. <laughs> oh, and so it's like, it's like you're going to die if you launch that thing. Right. So that, that's the old one. That was, that was like Vietnam time. And I, I learned it in SOI, but it was, I think it was a class or two classes after me that they just axed it from the curriculum because like, well, nobody uses this anymore. It's, it's garbage. So the Javelin is what they call fire and forget. What you do is you, you have targeting computer, you attach the missile to it, you lock onto your target, and as soon as you launch, it does a soft launch. So all it does is kick it out of the tube high enough to get away from you. So when it actually ignites the full engine, it doesn't hit you with the blast of the engine. So it's just it's just this kick up in the air, and then it takes off. And it's got its own guidance computer in the missile that takes over. So when you're locking onto the target, you're telling the computer on the missile to follow that target. So once you launch, you get up and move. You're gone. So, right. And then that thing can strike out, you know. It says it says two thousand meters is the effective range, but you can lock on the targets a lot further than that. Really, as long as, as long as you know what it is. The problem is with friendly fire. If you lock onto a friendly tank, you blow that one to hell. So then it flies through the air, comes down, blows it up from the top. It's it's pretty cool. And is it, it does your target have to be stationary or can it be moving? No, no. And uh, and the the targeting computer will will follow it and it and it updates its target you know sixty times per second as the missile flies towards the target. So any movement that it makes or any turning it, you know, it, it logs all that as it moves. And so even if the target's moving, you can you can you can shoot it. And then you can even switch it to instead of top attack, um, which is the standard, you can switch it to a direct attack, so it'll just fly straight at it. Um, that way you can shoot helicopters. Uh-huh. Um, that way, you know, obviously top down doesn't work on a helicopter so well. Right. So right. wow, that's crazy. So that's pretty cool. Is is it as much fun to shoot one of those things as it sounds like? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, Although the soft launch, I mean, that must take some of the, the thrill out of it. I had a, a buddy who um, weighed like 350 pounds or something. He's just this massive dude. And yeah. uh, when he was in the military, he fired shoulder launch missiles, I think shooting down airplanes or something. And he said that was the most fun he'd ever had. Was that the old law that they were using? Um, I, I don't know what it was. He was, let's see, this was in the eighties. He probably was in the military in like the late seventies. So I don't know what he would have been shooting yeah, then. I, mean, sure been I think it was heat seeking, but yeah, he said it was, it was just like, they only had really big dudes would do it. Cause I guess they didn't have that soft launch you described. It was just yeah. like flying out. So the small was was a little bit more dramatic um it was a smaller rocket but it it kicked out like a giant gunshot and so it didn't kick back 
um, because it, it had it was empty behind it. So yeah. it, was an, it was an engine, so it, it didn't give you kick. Um, so there's no real recoil, but the weight shift kind of makes you lean forward as you fire it. So you got to make sure you compensate for that when you launch, or else you ditch the missile and miss your target. Or not missile, it's a rocket, rather. Um, so that one was a little more tricky, but it was so loud. I mean, the, the small was just this huge boom, and, like, everybody could hear it over everything. And so it was like, oh, look, they're over there. But that was another one you could just move as soon as you shot, so you didn't have to sit there and, and guide it. Right. So, right. But anyway, um, so after boot camp, you go to SOI. You do the training in SOI, School of Infantry. Um, then you go to your station. I was stationed in 29 Palms, California. Uh basically hell on earth as far as you know weather and temperature and, and geographically speaking it's it's uh, in the middle of the mojave and hot and dry and there's a cesspool at the bottom of the hill so it all smells like shit and uh yeah it's it's good so <laughs> and how long were you there um well that was my that was my duty station so i mean i was in and out of there for the rest of my active duty time um so i was there so I got there, I think, January of 2001. And then we didn't deploy until the next February, so 2002 is when I first deployed to Okinawa. And we, I was only in Okinawa for about six or eight weeks, maybe, before we, we moved out um, and attached security forces Bahrain. And then so you um, flew to Bahrain and then went on ships from there? Yeah, um, yeah, flew from from Thailand, stop over in Bangkok, and then down over to Bahrain, and then just boarded ships. And we we would switch ships, so we weren't always on the same ships. But um, it, it was basically providing security on civilian contracted um, merchant marine vessels that were supplying or servicing the the battle group um, that was in the the Persian Gulf, or the Gulf of Oman. So we kind of go. Um, through the straits there and then at one point we actually went over flew over to sicily got on a ship there and went through the suez and then down into uh the persian gulf area we like did that little loop right on and yemen right pirate pirate alley yeah and that's that's why they wanted us on there is because these these ships didn't have any any real defenses but then they put us on there and they put you know like 20 of us you know 12 to 20 of us, depending on which group you were in. And then you get a, a 50 cal machine gun to mount on the, on the railing. And then you get, um, a 240 golf, which is a 7.62 millimeter machine gun, um, to mount. And so you can move the mounts depending on where you needed them. But that was, that was as heavy as you got. <laughs> it's like, well, if somebody really wants to attack and they have a lot of people, we're, we're still kind of fucked here. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. But, you know, and did you have been? Sorry, did you did you have any action on any of those? Um, no, there was there was one point where we had some some little um, s- small, a little bit bigger than speedboats. I don't know what you classify them as, but they would they would try and circle around the ship and get close. So I mean, we we fired more more warning shots than anything else, mm. um, and they and they'd scatter and, and you'd see them again later. But yeah, that was that was about as much as that was. We were just more of a uh, threat deterrence than a engagement force yeah yeah did you so at what point if at all do you start thinking about like killing people 
you know, like, because it, it all sounds like an adventure and you're learning stuff and you're sort of moving through these different processes. But do you ever, is there ever a point where you're talking with other guys and, and saying, man, you know, are we going to do this? Like, or is that just unspoken? Um, it's not, I don't think, at least not out loud. We, we didn't reflect on it as far as like a moral or ethical thing. Like, is it okay? Or should we even be doing this? Or should we even be here? It was more like, this is our job. And it was kind of like the lens in which you view the world and the environment you're in is like, we are here to protect our interests. And if somebody wants to throw themselves at us, then that's their problem. And you shouldn't have done that. Um, and so it was, it was kind of this mindset of, you know, if they didn't want to get shot, they shouldn't come at us. Like, yeah. Um, and as, as far as sitting there and thinking, well, you know, am I really going to have to shoot somebody? That's, that's not something you really sit down and think about. Hmm. At least I didn't at the time. And I, we never had those kind of conversations. Did you have, have anybody, I mean, did you guys interact with people who were seeing a lot of, of action? So at that time, for for the first deployment, there we didn't really deal with anybody that had seen. There was people at the time, I think in Afghanistan, um, but we were my unit anyway. We ended up going over to Kuwait and invading in Iraq, and um, and that's when you kind of think about. That's kind of when the reality of how is this really going to go down and what might actually happen to me starts becoming real. Like when you're there. And you can see the fence, and you're like, "Hmm, what is really going to happen here?" So that so, was a little different. Yeah. So you're. So let's talk about that. You're in Kuwait for this huge buildup. Yeah. And that's what two two thousand seven. Are we talking about? No, no. This was two thousand three. Two thousand three. Okay. This was the the initial invasion of Iraq. Um, was when I was there. So we we built up in Kuwait first, and and. You know, every once in a while you'd run up close to the border. I mean, we were back far enough away in our camps that no Iraqi artillery could could range us. So we were we were back further for that. But you know, we'd we'd go up and back um, at various times. So you'd go up and see it. But then you start thinking, well, you know, what's this really gonna be like? And you know, you kind of think of them as a joke. You're like, well, look what happened in the '90s. Like they just kind of rolled over and died. Like this is gonna be easy. Um, so that was kind of the mentality. But then you get these like really raw raw kind of speeches from the from the brass and they they come out and be like yeah you know all these army guys over here at this camp they're complaining and bitching and moaning that they're here but you guys you marines you know better you know you guys know the fastest way home is through baghdad and so you know you keep ready to go and they do these like speeches that would like you know they sounded great they're like you're like yeah yeah raw raw but then you're like sitting on thinking about you like that was actually kind of stupid like it didn't really make sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that that's one thing that I've always imagined if I were in the military would be really hard to handle is is the the feeling like, stop talking to me like I'm stupid. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it seems like a lot of that is pitched to to someone who isn't really thinking a lot. You know? I think I think that's the game, though, because who who do they target for recruitment? You know, they target fresh out of high school, 18, yeah. 19, 20-year-olds who are full of testosterone and, you know, in a society where violence is glorified to a certain extent and it's like, hey, you know, you can go use this outlet and, and join. And so 
you're kind of susceptible to it. You yeah. know, you're not really experienced enough. You're not really even an adult. Like, and you don't really know better. Yeah. You, you kind of know better, but you don't, you don't sit there and reflect on it and compare decisions. You don't, you don't do what you would do if you had joined when you were 24, or 25. Right. Like you were a different person. And so that's who they want. And so they do talk to you. They talk to everybody like they're all 18 and 19 because that's what most of them are. Yeah. Um, so, and the ones that stay around are the ones that, you know, decided to not go ahead and, and push back too hard against the establishment. So the people that are older in the service have, have bought in or have at least chosen to be compliant. Um, yeah, yeah. Do, do you remember anybody who sort of flamed out when, when you were there or people who just said, oh, this is bullshit and just... Yeah, yeah. Um, we we called them terminal lances. Um, they were people who made it to Lance Corporal because that was kind of the rank structure. You kind of get automatic promotions up to Lance Corporal, which is E3. Um, and then you have to start you know, getting, building a score. And for us, we had to do uh, kind of like a panel to get promoted, um, to corporal, which is the first NCO rank. Um, and the, and the people who would mouth off or, or be bad, they'd be what we would call a terminal lance. They would do their four years and they would never get past lance corporal because they would run their mouths. And there's this one guy, he was, he was funny. He'd always bleach his hair, which is against regulations, but they couldn't really make him do anything. And so he was always, you know, pissing off the brass that way. And then he'd make comments. We were, out in the field and we were getting ready to do a movement from where we had camped the night before to to the road where we were going to get picked up and he, and uh the officer was up on the hill and we were all down below and he's like and there's the shepherd getting ready to herd his flock <laughs> and, but he said it just loud enough where the officer could hear and he's like you know i don't want to say his name but he's like you what the and he's like calling him up and so he had to go and get his ass reamed and and then i'm sure he had some other sort of you know off-duty punishment later but he was uh, there was guys that that kind of saw through the bullshit and and uh, I haven't had one corporal tell me, you know, the good ones get out is what he said when he was on his way out. He's like, really? He's like, I'm getting out in a month. And he's like, he's looking around. And he said, do you see the people reenlisting? He's like, yeah, the good ones get out. Mm. So he was he was an interesting character. He he knew enough to keep his mouth shut so he could he could kind of get himself into a position where he was a little bit higher rank. He was he, you know for the first four years if you're a corporal and. The cutting score is too high to to reach sergeant without being crazy extreme. Um, you know, he didn't have to do as much as like a lance corporal would have to do. So he was smart enough to keep his mouth shut, but he knew he kind of knew the bullshit. Yeah, I, I can imagine it, it. After a while, though, once you learn the ropes, if it, it can be real comfortable in a way because everything's sort of taken care of, right? Your medical medical stuff and your food, your retirement, your like everything's dealt with. Yeah, it's almost it's almost too much, I think, because like when you're a you know private PFC lance corporal, you got the barracks you don't have to pay for, you don't really have any bills. You're not there's no eviction and there's no starvation. Like yeah. you could blow your entire paycheck the day you get it. And you still eat because it is a chow hall and you still have a rack. And so you kind of learned some bad money habits. Like if you didn't go in with good money habits or you were kind of so-so, like you learned some bad habits because you're like, I can just blow my money. It's fine. <laughs> then you're like, oh, wait, later I have to actually pay bills and get shit on time. You know what it sounds like? Communism. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I try to explain to people when they when they get... You know, because America, socialism is a dirty word. Oh, don't you're a socialist. No, see, when the government takes money from taxes and uses it 
to support the society, that is a version of socialism. So when you support your police, you yep. know, that's a version of socialism. <laughs> like the military too. The military, they're taking money from the people and spending it on military. Like a lot you know, of you money. You may be more or less of a socialist, but if you support the military, you're at least somewhat a socialist because yeah. you're not spending, you're not writing a check to them to support them. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that's a, a glaring idiocy in American political dialogue. This whole, you know, socialism is bad thing. Like, hey, you drive on roads, you're a socialist, right? You know, yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, and also, I mean, if you've ever been to a socialist country, they live very nicely. Like Denmark, Sweden, come on, those are really nice countries. But we won't get into that. That's Although you have studied philosophy and, and criminal justice, is that right? Yeah, I was a criminal justice pre-law. I did a minor in philosophy. Um, I want to go back and actually be a history teacher. I want to go back and get a master's in teaching history. Mm. Um, so I'm hoping to go back this fall and, and do that or start that. But Interesting. we'll see how that goes. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so speaking of history, so you were there. You were a part of history. So you're, you're, in, this, uh, you're in Kuwait. I mean, that must have been amazing. You got, what, how many guys there? 100,000 guys or something? Mast? Uh, I don't even remember the whole the whole buildup. It was a lot. Yeah, um, and and just the planes coming and going, and all the equipment being staged. I mean, that. I mean, Jesus, that's like a hundred thousand burning mans. Oh yeah, it was it was a lot, and and they they separate them into different camps. So you have these giant tents, you know, where people stay. So you'd put you know an entire platoon almost in a tent, and. Um, you have all these tents, and then you have various tent cities, you know, around. Um, the worst part of the tent city, at least where I was, is they put all the shitters upwind of the tents. That's not smart. And, well, it's Kuwait. It's flat, it's windy, and it blows dirt everywhere. And so then the dirt starts flying all the time, and you get it in your eyes. And that was I, – I had never had pink eye before until I was in Kuwait. And, like, the wind's blowing right across the shitters, right through the dirt, right through everything. You know, shit gets tipped over, and then it's just in the wind and in the dirt, and it's blowing in your face. Oh, man. That was stupid. Why didn't you put them on that side? Yeah. So yeah. – and, and that's – like, a lot of that stuff's being done by contractors now. It's not even actually military, right? The food and the setting up this the the – tent cities and all that a lot of it's Halliburton and these independent contractors yeah a lot of it is um and and some of it is just uh, a contract it's it's like a government agency that supports the military but is not the military so the funding doesn't come out of dod so it doesn't look as big and mm. then it really is because we're still spending government money on it and probably more than we should but you know they get to hack it up a different way all right and so as far as i understand like the, the cooks and all those kind of in the supply and all that stuff they're axing those jobs and, and putting them on civilians and then they're gonna you know just run as lean as they can for the actual military part right so right yeah. I mean, maybe it's good and bad i mean if if you don't have to run as intensive boot camps i mean maybe you can scale down the size of that because you don't have to have as many people you know you just have civilian people working in the place i don't know maybe it'll work out yeah probably not so tell me about the the invasion. What what happens? How 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 far in advance did you know you guys were going to be moving out? Um, they moved us up near the fence because um, there's this giant berm and fence that was built along the border between Kuwait and Iraq. Um, they moved us out the the afternoon before, um, but we didn't know exactly when we were going to cross. It was just like we're going to cross, but we don't know exactly when. 
Um, and so we were there the night before. And then when they when they started the artillery, we knew we were going to go the next morning because they there's this there's this one hill on the on the Iraq side of the border, and it's it's just a little ways from the border. And they and they built it up. It's a man-made mountain or hill. And they, they built it up just so they could put an observation post on top so they could see into Kuwait because it's so flat. You just need a little bit of elevation. And so, you know, the artillery just pounded that thing into, you know, smashed it. I don't Probably lost, you know, several feet of elevation. Um, so we watched that all night. And then the next morning we loaded on the, uh, the horrible tracked vehicles that are very uncomfortable and uh, went across the border. And... There was always this kind of fear that, well, Saddam had used gas, so he might use gas on us because, you know, he doesn't have the military power to fight us, so he might use something like that. So there was this really edgy feeling of of getting gassed. Um, And so as soon as we were going through the the fence, they did this breach in the fence, and we were going through, and they have these separate vehicles that do all the nuclear, biological, and chemical detection, and... For some reason, their sensors got tripped, and so you know, it goes over all the comms, you know, gas. So everybody, you know, puts on their gas mask, and they're like, "Oh shit, here we go." And and that's a bit nerve-wracking, I think, because you know you hear all the stories about gas and what it does to you. And uh, so we went through, and then it, it came back. It was something else had tripped up their sensor, and so it was it was called clear. But um, then we just moved up along the main route in. Uh, in Iraq, and it was just this huge, long train of vehicles that you could just, as far as you could see, you know, going up the edges of the road with with Humvees driving up and down in the middle, you know, for for whatever reason. And were there any so, Iraqi people in sight, or did they just all scatter? Um, you know, I don't think they knew. Like the, the some a lot of people in southern Iraq and away from the cities are are. You know, country bumpkins. They're they still have you know mud huts that are half brick, half mud, and they you know farm their little bit of land and do what they can. And like we would roll up, and they would just be like astounded that we were like, "What is going on?" You could just see the look on their face. Like I don't think they knew. <laughs> they didn't have radios. They didn't have power, so they had they had no idea we were even coming. So it was like, uh, sure, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and, uh, and a lot of the forces that were supposed to be there, there was there were some tanks and stuff, but the the helicopters just blew what was there, and then it was it was pretty clear we didn't really have any kind of issues until we got up towards um, Al Kut. I can't remember how far from the from the border that was. That's that's when there's there were some firefights going on. That was really the the first of of anything that we did because the rest of the time was sitting in tracks. It was. Know, ten hours at a time sitting in this tracked vehicle on a paved road, so it vibrates like madness. Oh wow! And you yeah. can't get out, so you got to take a piss, and you're just sitting there, just and it's just vibrating the whole way, and you're just like, I really got to piss right now, and there's, there's nowhere to piss, so you just have to hold it. But it got it got a little better once we got past Coot, and we started to fan out a little bit. Um, there was there was more disembarking from the vehicles, um, and then finally we got. Mine is because I was javelins. I was a I was a weapons guy. I was part of weapons company, and we got attached out to the other companies, um, and so we had to ride with them, and that's why we were on the tracks. But once we got recalled back to the weapons um, company itself, we we started in the Humvees, and that was that was a much better ride. You know, and that was at the time where we had taken all the doors off of our Humvees 
because then you could sit and you could face out with your weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, because the whole IEDs getting blown up left and right was had not been an issue. So I mean, we had we were running with with canvas tops and no doors. Now it's it's MRAPs everywhere you go because you know shit blows up all the time. So the guys now probably have it harder than I did. We we got in a couple of, of small firefights going up into Baghdad, um, but I mean for the most part they they gave up. There was a few that were that were adamant on you know keeping things the way they were and they would fight, but for the most part I mean they drive up in busloads and surrender. Mm. So they were like fuck it, I don't want any of this. Yeah, well, when you imagine a a force like that coming in, you know, who's going to fight against that? Especially for Saddam. I don't know. Yeah. And and he ran early, too. Yeah. He was gone. Him and by the time we got up to Baghdad, I mean, everybody, all the higher level people were gone. Yeah. Um, you know, we were running into their houses and it was just, they left everything. They grabbed, you know, the only the most important things and then they were gone. Yeah. Did you get into any of those houses, palaces and all that shit? Yeah. Um, went into Tariq Aziz's house, who was, I think he was the deputy prime minister. Um, and we stole all his cigars. Um, so pretty much the entire Cubans? battalion was running around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, and he had them in his, in his humidified room and stuff. And so we just stole them. We just, we just handed them out. So like the entire battalion is running around. You know, like a thousand people, thirteen hundred people, just all with Cubans, just hanging out of the mouth. Some lit, some not. And just you know, it was, it was pretty funny. I'm not even a smoker, but I was like, sure, you know, why not? You know, some some people pocketed his booze, and then. Um, what was that like to walk into the guy's house? That must have been surreal. His house was nice, but the one that was was crazy was, um, if I remember correctly, it was Saddam's cousin's house. And it was all marble and had these big columns and they had this nice carpeting. And it was, it was hilarious to me because at the time, that, that, that was when I first started really going, what the fuck? Because, you know, we're told they hate us, they hate our freedoms, they hate all this, you know, all the bullshit taglines they would tell us. But then you'd go into the rooms and there'd be like a PlayStation 3 and games and like a Britney Spears poster. And you're like, you guys remember me, this is like, you know, early 2000s. So there were yeah. still some people left over liking Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> the enemy. I think, I think that's all gone now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like they got her on up in a poster. So it's like, wait a minute, your women are supposed to be covered, but you got this on your wall. How much do you really believe this shit? And how much is it a tool for your use to get people to do what you really want them to do? Uh-huh. Like, so that's, you know, I think for me, that was, that was when... Some of, the, some of that just started to really fall apart. I mean, I'd, I'd always ask questions, but usually, you know, in a kind of asshole way, and I'd be told to shut the fuck up and you know, whatever. But that, that was, I was really started like, what the fuck? This doesn't make sense. Obviously, they don't hate us for that because they're using that. Right. Uh, and so they, but then they, you know, they'd have all their, all their nice stuff in their house. But then they'd have like these, on the wall, there was this big marble picture like built out of marble you know like a like a collage or something like of their family and it's like well wait a minute that's that's against islam already you're not supposed to make depictions of people you know like that's so wait how much do you actually believe this stuff you know Tariq aziz has got bibles in his house i think he was supposed to be catholic though so that doesn't really that that probably wouldn't be weird but Mm -hmm. so 
I don't know. It just didn't seem to match, you know? Yeah. Okay. So you're starting to question the relationship between leadership and, and the people uh, in, in Iraq. <clears throat> now, did that lead you to turn around and say, okay, wait a minute, how much of what our leaders are saying do they really believe? Yeah. I mean, like I said before, like when they give the speeches, I was kind of like, you know, at the time, you know, everybody's all, cause you're all packed together. It's like, it's like a big church congregation or a big concert. Like there's right. that feeling, that mass feeling you get. Yeah. But once you get out and you sit down and you're like, that was really kind of stupid. It'd actually be really easy to just get on a plane and go home. The fastest way home is not, you know, a <laughs> long trek up to a different city. Like that's bullshit. Yeah. Like we could just get on a fucking plane, like whatever. Yeah. But when you're in, in, in the moment, it seems different. So, you know, hindsight. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean, yeah, so, I mean, so it started to crack, but that's when it really started. You know, pieces falling off the edifice. Right. So when you're you're in this, you know, these tracked vehicles rumbling up toward Baghdad. I mean, are you thinking we're doing this because they hit us on nine eleven? Yeah, that was still kind of the the mentality. You know, they they came and attacked us, and this is this is where they're training them, and this is they've got the weapons of mass destruction, bullshit. Um, you know, and they've got. You know they're bad. Saddam's bad, and and it's true. Saddam was bad, and I don't really feel bad about some of it, at least, because he was a bad guy. But we kind of made him the bad guy, and I didn't learn that until later. Like, start getting into the history and stuff. You're like, wait a minute, we we made him, and we made him the way he was as a, as a, as the United States. And so it's like, well, why do we have to fight him now? That was kind of stupid. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the way it works. We create the monsters, and then we we need to go fight them. It's interesting. Um, the so so you 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 were getting a lot of propaganda about uh, weapons of mass destruction and all that. You know, I've always wondered. Maybe, maybe you've got some thoughts on this. I've always wondered why didn't they just fake finding weapons of mass destruction? You know, I mean, they've lied about so many other things. I don't understand why they didn't just lie about that, because that was such a humiliation for the Bush administration not to find them. Well, you know, This is why I'm not a conspiracy theorist, because I don't think conspiracy theories work out most of the time. You know, if you can't keep a blowjob in the Oval Office between two people, like, secret, how are you going to keep, like, staged weapons secret or, you know you know, staged plane. So nine 11 was actually an inside job. Like, how are you going to stage that and silence that many people? If you can't keep a fucking blowjob secret. Yeah. But like, you know, you invaded this country as part of a conspiracy theory, right? I mean, they were saying, Oh, he's got this stuff and he did this and you well, know, nine 11 and that was all bullshit. And they pulled that off. But that's, that, I think that's the difference between propaganda and conspiracy. Like the conspiracy, like tries to get people to believe like forever. And then the propaganda is like, an excuse for an attack at the time. You know, you demonize the enemy. They're bad. They're going to all come get us. So we better get them before they get us. And then later when it turns out there's nothing there, they go, oops, well, we had bad intel. We relied on bad intel. And yeah, yeah that's bad. But oh, well, it's already done. Like they kind of fob it off. Like Dick Cheney's kind of an asshole. He's like, you know, well, you know, I'd do it again because, you know, we didn't know at the time. So, you know, we just did the best we could. It's like, really? That was the best you could? Yeah. So... I think I don't think they could have staged it. I don't think they could have put in, you know, fake WMDs to then say, look, look, we really found them. Because then, you know, you get weapons inspectors in there, especially if they're UN weapons inspectors and they're not mm. on the take. Right. Like, 
I, I think it's easier to just say, oh, well, we fucked up, and then the news cycle moves on, and, you know, there's some sex scandal, and everybody forgets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you make a good point. There is a difference between conspiracy theories and propaganda. That's that's definitely true. Propaganda only has to work for as long as you need it to work, and then who gives a shit? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the Germans weren't the Huns. Like, oh, well, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're coming. We're coming up on an hour here. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but oh, it, I got I got plenty of time. To I mean, looking back, as as you want. Oh, thank you, thank you. Looking back on this, uh, you know, you're, obviously you're older. You've you've aged, and you know, even if you hadn't had these experiences, you'd be a different man today than you were then. But um, how, how do you? How's it? I mean, how do you deal with being an American from this perspective? You know, like, um, and, and it's not just American, it's, it's a thinking person because other countries have their own bullshit as well. Um, but, you know, what do you, like, you know, we just passed Memorial Day. How do you feel about celebration of, you know, this sort of hero worship of military culture? I, I, I can't stand the hero worship part. I get, I get irritated by it because the friends of mine that I've that I've lost, like, I thought they were the best. They they were certainly better than me at being Marines. They were better than I was. And maybe and maybe I'm just giving them too much credit, but like I feel like they were better than me, but they're the ones that got blown up. And it's like, wait a minute. How does that make them a hero because they got blown up? Like there's no it's not like the the shitty shithead, you know, you know, recruit that barely made it by all the way this long. He's not the one that gets capped. Like it's, it's almost random. Like you can't tell. There's no, no matter how good you are, you can still get smoked. And so I, I, the whole, Oh, well he's a hero. It's like, well, what about all the other people? What are they heroes or not? So the hero worship thing kind of irritates me. And looking back at it now, the whole, like the American sniper thing, like he shoots the kid and, you know, you're supposed to feel bad that he had to do it, but you're like, yeah, well, the kid was the enemy. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If you go watch Red Dawn, you know, it's about our American kids fighting off an invasion force and we're supposed to root for them. So are we supposed to root for the kid or are we supposed to root for the invading force? Like, which one's the hero? So I, I, can't, I can't do the hero worship anymore. Um, I don't know if I ever really did hero worship. There was people that you're told are heroes and you kind of think, well, that's awesome. You know, that, what that guy did was really cool. But as far as hero, I don't know. I, I don't know about heroes. Yeah. You, you talk about uh, people you know who, who um, died or, or got hurt badly in Iraq. Were there a lot of, of people that you know who went through that? The people that had the worst came after my unit was, was mostly there. I mean, at least the people I knew in my unit at the time. Because um, the worst fighting didn't come up until later. The invasion was relatively smooth. It was it was pockets of fighting, pockets of resistance, but it wasn't the hardcore IED, um, you know, insurgent mentality yet. That that kind of grew later. So the the people that went after me and and some of the people I knew because I I got out for a couple of years from active duty and then decided you know I kind of I kind of missed some of this and so I went back into the reserve and some of the guys I was in reserve with. Um, almost all of them were prior active duty, um, but there was a couple of guys that had been over there for some of the more intense times, and um, 
I forgot how I got here. Uh, I was yes, I was question. asking about uh, people who've been hurt or killed. And w- when you were in the reserve, did you deploy again overseas? Uh, we went for some training, which was pretty cool. I went to Israel for some training, and um, we did we did some other stuff. But I didn't I didn't go on any combat deployments. There was one that was that was coming up when I was coming up on the end of my time in the reserves, on the end of my contract, and I was deciding whether I was going to re-enlist or not. And there was talk of a deployment, and they were moving people around. Um, but it turns out I was, in the, I was in the sniper platoon at the time. And it, it turns out that of all the guys that went to do the workup to deploy, only the actual school-trained snipers went. And I was still in school when, when all this moving was going on. I was still um, at UNR. And um, the if I had gone, I would have just sat there in Pendleton because I never went to I never went to sniper school, so I was I was just a pig as they call them. But um, the school trains guys went over there. What's a pig? Just somebody who's got a good good aim. <laughs> so in the in the sniper community, there's there's the hogs, which are the they call them hunter of gunmen. I don't know who came up with these acronyms. And then there's the pigs, the professionally instructed gunmen. And so if you've gone to sniper school. You're, you're a hog. You're, you're a full-fledged sniper. If you, you know, you survived the indoc into the sniper platoon and you're a high performer, you stay, you get training, you get on the job training, but you're not a full-fledged sniper. And so I never went to sniper school, so I wasn't, I wasn't on that side. But mm. I was in the platoon for, for three years, but I was going to school. So every time a sniper school seat came up, I was like, well, I'm, I've, I've got classes. I can't, I can't put it all on hold right now. Mm. Um, so, so when it came time to re-enlist, I, I didn't. So I was like, I gotta, I gotta go. I, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. In a way, the, the sniper thing seems like that might be one of the most difficult positions to be in because then you're actually seeing the person you're shooting as opposed to just firing off a rocket or artillery or whatever. Yeah. Yes and no. You're. You're, you are aiming at a particular individual, and so there's – but it, it's, almost like, it's almost like they're not a person. Like, I, I don't know. Did you ever read um, Grossman's On Killing? Yeah. It's, it's, kind of this, it's kind of this idea that it's not really a person. Like, it's, they're, they're the bad guy, and so they're not – they don't have full humanhood. You know, they're, they're, they're just kind of the enemy. Um, that's, that's the mentality. That's the training. Um, so I don't I don't know I I never had to do it so I, I can't speak from experience on on that particular one. Um, when I came back from from Iraq though, a, a lot of people would ask, and I I always found this weird um, because the number one thing people would ask me is, well, how many people did you kill? I'm like, why is that the question? Why is that the first question? Like, it just kind of baffled me. And and so I explained, well, I'm, I I don't know, like that. That the question doesn't really make sense. And then, and you know, one guy one time he's like, "Well, you know, when I go hunting for a deer, I know if I shot the deer or not." I'm like, "Yeah, but you don't have a thousand guys shooting at the same deer at the same time. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I shot him or not. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's not really a thousand guys, but you know, you get the point. Like, there's, it's not a it's one a storm. on one situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I imagine people are curious about that because it's. It's, you know, growing up in American culture, it's something that we imagine every fucking day, right? Every movie we see, every TV show, there's, you know, you're seeing it. You can't watch 
media in the United States without imagining killing someone. It's like watching porn without imagining fucking someone. You know, you, you can't do it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think there's, I think there's more a, a stronger connection to like the porn and imagining watching or imagining doing it when you're watching it than when you see it on TV. It's more like, it's more like you imagine the situation. I think because you know what it feels like. So when you're watching porn, you, you have some basis, even, even if you've just masturbated, like if you're like 13 and you know, you just, you know that feeling, but you don't know the feeling of, of pointing at somebody and pulling a trigger. So it's not, it's, it's glorified, but it's this weird kind of mystification glorification. I think yeah. it's, it's this, wow, what would that be like? But having no basis of, of, you know, there's there's no baseline to compare it to. There's no yeah. Well, I, th- similar, I think that's why experience. people are fascinated, right? That's why they want to hear about it because it's yeah. So maybe. like it's both extremely uh, commonplace and yet utterly unimaginable at the same time. You know, and then you know there, what's that line? Those who know don't say, and those who say don't know. Because I imagine even if, like, let's say you had deployed as a sniper and you did shoot people and see, you know, see them die and stuff. How do you describe that? You know, it's, I don't know. you can't answer that question. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a strange world, man. So um, you, uh, you, you mentioned in one of your emails that you wanted, uh, wanted me to play. I don't want to be like you by the novelists. Yeah. Like you, you play a lot of off music and I, it just came to mind when you were talking about something on one of your podcasts and, and so, so uh, tell me the story. Is, um, so this a friend of mine, I actually met him when I was, I was in the criminal justice program. He, he has this band, the novelists and, um, he just, he kind of got, fed up with the whole idea of being owned as a person and kind of being a wage slave. And so he, he just, he doesn't, he decided he didn't want it, but I think that was in connection to one of the other podcasts. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what topic was. You were talking about something being able to just go live in a van or something. Um, (laughs) Down by the river. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't that a Chris Farley skit? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for this, Jared. It's it's great talking to you, man. All right. Sounds good. All right, buddy. Thanks. All right. Thank you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play 
to the ground. 